You're listening to the Beauty Plus Justice podcast, where we talk with folks from a variety of fields about what it will take to create a more clean and equitable future of beauty for everyone. These conversations are led by Dr. Tamara James Todd, a trailblazer at Harvard Teach Chan School of Public Health and head of the Environmental Reproductive Justice Lab. And I'm your host, Lisa Johnson, a PhD candidate at Harvard Chan. Hey listeners, I can't believe this is already the fourth episode of Beauty Plus Justice. Today on the podcast, we're going to be building on the conversation from the last episode about beauty product exposures, this time focusing in on pregnancy as an important time point for health recommendations and interventions, and also the role that clinicians have in this work. There needs to be uh, more environmental health literacy, if you want to say that, in um, medical school curriculum and residency training. That was Dr. Blair Wiley. She's the founding director of the Collaborative for Women's Environmental Health in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Columbia University Vagilos College of Physicians and Surgeons. She'll be joining us today to share her experience working in obstetrics and the importance of communicating with patients about environmental exposures. Our environment can affect not just our health or our children's health, but also our grandchildren's and even great-grandchildren's health. What do we need to consider when it comes to beauty product and consumer product usage during this sensitive time window? And how should clinicians speak to their patients about these issues when there's still uncertainty? Let's hear what insights Blair and Tamara have for us. All right, Blair. I'm really, really thrilled that we actually get to sit on a podcast together and and really just get to chat and and catch up, but really talk about what is, I think, near and dear to to topics um, we very highly value both in research and then, of course, for you clinically. And so I'm going to just start with, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Yeah. No, uh, the pleasure is really mine. Uh, This is a luxury to be able to sit down and speak with you. So by way of introduction, my name is Blair Wiley and I am an obstetrician gynecologist. I actually gave up the gynecology and did some extra training in maternal fetal medicine. So now practice almost solely on the obstetric side. Thank you so much. Um, And for those of the, you know, for those in our audience who may not know um, kind of what does a maternal fetal medicine specialist do? Do you want to give us a little bit of insight into what, what is that? Sure. First of all, it's a mouthful. So we usually use the word MFM. Um, we, we tend to take care of people who are having complications either with the pregnancy themselves or have underlying medical conditions or something that we've diagnosed in the fetus. Uh, so that that their care is a little special uh, and enhanced compared to someone without any of those complications. Yeah, no, th- thank you for that. And and another hat you wear, correct me if I'm wrong, is director of obstetrics for our pediatric environmental health specialties unit. Is that is that true? It is, it is relatedly true. Um, I'm not even sure that's a word, but I am the obstetric consultant to the region one, uh, which is New England's PESU, um, and really have, uh, it's been, it's been quite a ride to my own learning to be at the, you know, at the table and listening and learning from truly card carrying environmental health practitioners. 
So to back up the PESU, which is easier to say than the actual spelled out name, which is the Pediatric Environmental Health Specialty Unit Network. I finally able to say that rolling off my tongue. Uh, the PESU has been around for decades and I think of it as kind of the environmental health equivalent of a poison control center um, where people can, people and providers, physicians uh, can call for advice on clinical concerns related to environmental health. And then when the PISU needed an obstetrician, at the time, there weren't very many obstetricians who were even thinking about environmental health or doing research in environmental health. Um, and so I got invited along, but really knew almost nothing more than what I was taught in my intro class and you know, what I had learned about air pollution. Um, and so my education really began as these, you know, I consider myself the obstetric sidekick to a lot of uh, people who, who know a lot more than me, um, but it's fascinating. Um, and, you know, and I think this has been one of my themes is that in our field, not just obstetrics, but OBGYN and women's health, we're way behind um, in terms of thinking of these things compared to our pediatric colleagues or even you know, emergency medicine, cardiology. So I think I've probably told you this, if you look at, and it's sitting behind me on my bookshelf, the, the maternal fetal medicine textbook, which is 1500 pages long, supposed to be sort of the height of obstetric knowledge. If you look up environmental health, up until recently, the only things there were tobacco, alcohol, mercury, so fish. We were talking, you know, we, we spoke about what kind of fish we could eat and a tiny bit on lead and that's it. Um, and really people, the familiarity of all of this other stuff that's coming into play, um, we're just not very facile with. And so when our patients start to ask questions, people freeze up because they don't know where to go to for answers. And that's where the PCU I think is helpful because you can phone a friend and even if your, you know, handy PESU obstetric consultant doesn't know the answer, she can phone a nation worth uh, of experts. I think you you hinted at something when you when you said, you know, but my patients are asking, you know, and and I think that it's very common for pregnant people to ask questions about, you know, what should I use, what shouldn't I use in, in pregnancy, and then likewise, you you mentioned that, you know, in addition to during pregnancy, you know, before pregnancy, when people may be having some challenges becoming pregnant, you know, what should I do? What should I not do? And, and so I know that our work, you know, we've had a wonderful opportunity to work together, but our work is really kind of converged around these consumer product chemicals. And so I'm curious, is, is that kind of, um, and, you know, that ongoing work is part of that driven by questions that you are asked? Is this like something that, uh, patient populations have growing concern around um, awareness of, of things in consumer products. I think that that the questions that patients pose often um, are not how we would phrase it as scientists or as environmental health uh, practitioners. So, you know, you give a talk and you talk about phenols or phthalates or PFAS or whatever. No one has ever come up to me and asked me specifically <laughs> a question that like is related to 
that, you know, using one of those words, right? right? But they will come up to me and say, can I get my hair dyed? Can I, you know, put on acrylic nails? Can I do this or that? And so we have to then translate that question into our own framework and then translate it back. Um, and so, you know, I think the only exception is as, and maybe coming more uh, familiar, some patients are receiving letters from their town that says there's PFAS in your water. If you're pregnant, talk to your doctor. <laughs> uh, and then the doctors are like, never heard of this. What is this? And, you know, they make their way to me and then we, we talk people off of the ledge. And I think that that's where, you know, uh, the challenge in uh, scientific communication is to make people aware of possible negative effects without also making them paralyzed about the modern world. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, this is where MFM feels comfortable. We are comfortable with uncertainty. So almost all of our conversations, whether it's about a fetal abnormality that we see on ultrasound or a maternal uh, you know, medical condition, we talk about what we know, the risks to, to be, the benefits, the unknowns, and the fact that there isn't one answer. And so we're very comfortable as MFMs in that realm of uncertainty. So talking about drug exposures, medications that we, we prescribe and what they do during pregnancy is very similar, I think, to talking about an environmental chemical. There's stuff that we know, there's stuff that we don't know. How do we extrapolate from the data that's out there and lift up without having, you know, paralyzing people? Yeah, no, I think um, that it's so important. And yet as scientists, we often spend time just here's all the information and we don't necessarily take the time out to say, okay, what can we maybe do to try to reduce um, risk and what can the you know individual do to um, you know either you know be, be able to be proactive in their own um, kind of risk reduction from the clinical side of things. What what links do we know about um, specifically in this case, kind of some of these environmental chemicals that may come from hair dyes and from nail polishes or sunscreens or other things? Um, I would love to get into the okay. Well, what should we be telling? Um, you know, individuals who may be seeing you all clinically um, that they might be able to do. So I'm trying to reframe in my mind what translating this knowledge of what's known um, into what might be useful information to provide. So I think about the air we breathe, the food we drink, food we eat, <laughs> the, the drinks, the water and other things that we drink and the, the products that we use. Um, and what one should be aware of with those sort of categories. And so they honestly maybe don't need to know certainly how to spell something like phthalate, <laughs> um, but, but recognizing, you know, we're telling people maybe you should be not cooking in nonstick cookware, whether they can spell out perfluorinated alkyl substances is not, is not the point. Um, and so really thinking through high level advice 
um, take off your shoes when you come home, wash your hands. Um, when you're thinking about buying produce, you can look at uh, lists of what, what are the clean 15, the ones that have the least pesticide exposure, trying to limit um, processed foods, not simply for the nutritional content, but because of those chemical exposures and, and translating it into to that uh, kind of messaging. I also think, um, and this is a little, a little bit on the soapbox, but I think we spend so much time in obstetrics talking about individual behaviors to the point that it's translated into a blame game. So that if you do have a preterm birth or a stillbirth or a, uh, an infant that's small, then because we've been sending these messages, here are exposures that might be uh, you know, connected to those things. Then the flip side is if I have one of those outcomes then it must've been quote unquote my fault. So. I think it is important to give people information and agency over their health, but I think that we're at a moment in time where we need to recognize that to move the needle on things like preterm birth or preeclampsia or any pregnancy outcomes or infertility, we can't simply rely on behavior change and that we need as a community of uh, people, scientists, clinicians, uh, patients, advocates, to start thinking about the higher level structural changes, um, cleaning up the water, stopping the introduction of you know, long lasting chemicals into the environment that an individual has little agency over. Um, so we need to do both and, and not every clinician will be facile at you know, the population health level and the individual level. But I think that we need to be speaking the same language because our voices actually carry some weight. And so, you know, related to that is this issue of beauty justice, which in the context of environmental health, I really see this as something that is really about what do we do to ourselves, our bodies and so on to fit into what, you know, we identify as an acceptable, um, whatever that means. And I think it's an interesting definition of, you know, form of beauty based on whatever our culture is and, and so on. And, you know, some of the things can be as drastic as, you know, um, you know, changing our skin color. So using skin lightening creams or, um, you know, changing hair textures or, using, you know, certain types of cosmetics that, um, you know, or feminine hygiene products or other things. And also noting how gendered beauty is. So the word, when we say, you know, how would you define beauty? Um, it's such a gendered word. And so like what happens for individuals who may, you know, identify a particular way, how <laughs> much more exposure um, oh. of various chemicals Ah, uh, our friend came. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, we have two hound dogs. And so they, they are coming to visit us right now. <laughs> hound dog visits. Hound dog visits. Um, no, I mean, I think that you're, you're thinking, uh, and I actually, the, the term I had not heard until 
either you coined it or um, are helping. I definitely didn't coin this phrase. Okay. <laughs> I promise I did it. But I, I, I think it's a powerful phrase because, um, you know, we in, in the United States and, and I, you know, just around the world, we spend a lot of money um, trying to achieve a particular standard of beauty. And, um, and the lengths that we'll go to to do that and what the impact is in particular windows of, of our lives. So particularly in the context of pregnancy, when those exposures aren't just our own exposures, they become exposures for the, the developing child as well. Oh, and the great grandchildren. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, um, you know, that that it's, it's not just one generation, it's not just two generations, it's three generations that are exposed, That's right. Exposed, that are right? Exposed, yeah. So I think we often don't take that into consideration and, and yet it does have real implications. So we worked in a study together uh, looking at hair products in, in, in shorter gestational age. And, you know, the premise behind that was that these chemicals that might be in hair products, um, these different types of fragrance chemicals and, and preservatives and so on might um, have impact on, on shorter gestational age or preterm birth. Um, um, and, and, and we found roughly an eight day shorter, um, you know, period. But I think sometimes going back to this point that you raised around these structural, um, you know, differences and discrimination, inequities, structural racism, and this issue of beauty justice, I, I would love if you could say a little bit more about, is this, you know, the impact of beauty chemicals that we expose ourselves to in the context of beauty, is that something that obstetricians tend to be aware of? So when asked the question, for example, you know, should I stop relaxing my hair? Should I stop dyeing my hair? You know, is that safe? Is that something that you feel like is commonly, you know, known? And what do you think it might take to kind of help the obstetrics world kind of become aware that these these things that people do to, to beautify themselves, to achieve these, these standards actually involve certain exposures that may or may not impact reproductive health. Yeah. I don't think that we're, we're trained very well in this. And I think then when people bring up the question as clinicians, we often freeze because we want to know the answer. And I think it's reasonable to say, I don't know, let me go look it up and I'll get back to you. Um, and there are people and groups that are putting out fact sheets and information, um, sound bites that can that can help us. But I do think there needs to be uh, more environmental health literacy, if you want to say that, in um, medical school curriculum and residency training, so that we ask about these things. There goes the hound dog again. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, and you know, I will say I, I, one of the most common consults that I do is prior preterm birth, thinking about having pregnancy again, having another, uh, uh, another child, what should we do in this, this subsequent pregnancy? And I, even as someone who did this project with you and thinks about these things, I will admit, I still have not gotten into the habit of asking a detailed environmental health history, even in the context of 
a 60 minute visit. We often get 60 minutes for those preconceptual consults, which is unheard of in medicine, right? So even in that, I am falling short. And so I think if we did that kind of um, conversational questioning, I think people would really feel empowered, right? That we're really thoughtfully trying to think through what are any of the potential contributors? Is there anything in my individual power that I could do to reduce the risk of this happening again, even if the data is not 100% perfect yet? And I think that's where often as a clinician, we're waiting for it to be the perfect answer as opposed to this might contribute and therefore um, you might think about about X, Y, or Z, uh, looking at the products, um, what's in them. And I think I've come around a little bit um, in in the thought of, I think sharing information, even in the absence of knowing everything is actually helpful because you tell people what we know, what we don't know, and then they may be motivated to advocate with their patient voice for more research, for better labeling. Blair, I so appreciate that because I do think that it's a trust building moment, right? Like, um, you know, the, the patient, the consumer, the individual, the human being sitting yeah. in front of us, um, really asking for an answer. And I think sometimes we get caught up in perfection. Yes. Forget the importance of progress. Right. And so how do you make decisions in the context of, you know, uncertainty um, and giving people agency, like kind of going back to the statement that you, you made before. So, you know, sometimes uh, what I feel like in the space of environmental health, um, we have to do is really improve the literacy, not just, you know, of individuals. Sometimes we are focused so much on the community that we, we also need to think more, you know, um, more specifically about who makes up that community. The community is not just, you know, the lay, <laughs> if you will, like it's, it's, it's physicians, it's, you know, as, as important in, um, gatekeepers of information and being able to give people agency. So I, I love that. This is a great insight from Tamara and Blair about the need to not only focus on consumer and patient education, but also clinician and provider education around issues of environmental and beauty justice. These folks can play an important role in forming individuals about simple changes they can make in their lives to reduce exposures, and they also have access and resources to find out more information for their patients on topics that they're concerned about. I was just going to say it can be therapeutic, right? So even in our minds as clinicians, we're thinking therapeutic is something you know, that I give or do and achieve an outcome where therapeutic can be acknowledging the perspective of the patient who has lived whatever outcome it is that, or disease that they're, they're in front of us. Um, and so um, when it comes, you know, for the specific example of environmental health, sometimes people ask, can you measure this in my bloodstream? And we may say, no, that doesn't do anything. And maybe that is the correct clinical answer, but you may have missed an opportunity, as you say, to build trust and say, well, let's see. And then we'll compare it to 
in Haines and some sort of national exactly. standard. And we may still not know what this means, um, but if you're willing, if you are okay with that uncertainty and this is something that's helpful for you, then sure. An important, important um, thing. I think we sometimes don't think about that level of trust. And along those lines, it's something that you, you brought up and when I kind of connected to this beauty justice question, um, kind of this idea of less advantaged or populations that have less agency and what, you know, what we might have to do in order to do additional trust building in those spaces, um, certain populations being overexposed. We know from NHANES, and for those of you who don't know what NHANES is, it's the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And it's a way for us to kind of look at biomonitoring or monitoring the status of our health. And um, they measure all sorts of different chemicals, including chemicals that can come from these consumer products. And, um, and so we know that certain groups like Black women, um, Hispanic women have much higher concentrations of these kind of beauty, um, personal care product related chemicals. And so in, in the interest of ensuring or improving equity, uh, where we know that these chemicals are related to things like preterm birth, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, and, and so on. What, what might it take to, you know, um, get, I mean, you've mentioned some of this around like improvements in the training and so on, but to be really help the medical community to kind of, um, you know, try to see this as an opportunity to reduce, um, health disparities and inequities um, with respect to exposures. Yeah, I think that we as clinicians think about eliminating disparities at the moment that you hit the hospital door uh, with your preterm contractions. And by then it may be very much too late. And I'm not trying to dismiss that there isn't you know, racism within our hospital structures that may contribute to outcomes. But I do think that we need to also be thinking upstream, like you say, um, and so getting more comfortable participating in community events, mostly to start by listening. You know, I can't imagine coming in to a community event with like a PowerPoint on, you know, <laughs> I, keep I keep picking on phthalates because they need more vowels. I mean, it's like the world's worst, like word ever. Right. Absolutely you know, going in and being like, Hey, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't use any of these, you know, beauty product products. Don't uh, eat any of this food, but yet not, not acknowledging the joy that's brought from beauty or, and I'm jumping between two different examples at once, but like for food, you know, we can say, don't eat processed food. And, you know, buy yourself some organic vegetables. Well, that, that comes with a huge price tag. So I think a lot of the individual behavior changes that we might pres- prescribe, if you will, as physicians to improve someone's health um, are available only to the wealthy and might paradoxically drive an increase in disparities not to say that we shouldn't share that information with people both wealthy and poor, but I think we have to acknowledge that um, many people will not be able to um, do as we say 
um, without it coming with some um, understanding of limited means, right? So I think that that that's important to acknowledge as well, which is where you know we need to be acting on the policy level as well as the individual clinician. I mean, I think that as clinicians and health educators getting into the communities to listen yeah. to begin is more important than to tell. Um, and I think we may find ourselves as scientists and researchers and, and physicians and healthcare providers finding that the answers may be we, we, we wouldn't have even thought of on our own. Um, so we don't have all the knowledge. Let's not pretend to have all the knowledge. Let's bring what we know, listen to what you know, and see if there's a creative solution that works for you. I love that. I love that, Blair. And I, I feel <laughs> like that just kind of takes the message home. And so I'll end with, is there any, you know, anything else that you want to share with us? Maybe there's, you know, an MFM or a cardiologist or a pediatrician out there listening to this podcast, and this is new to them and they want to get you know, involved in, in really promoting environmental justice in some way and thinking about maybe beauty justice as well. How do they get involved in, you know, any other parting words that you might want to share with us? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that one, one parting bit of advice was don't be scared by a lack of knowledge. Um, so just because this area may be unfamiliar to you, then that's an, think of that as an opportunity, right? Okay, so you didn't get instruction on it in medical school or whatever the case may be. So find avenues to teach yourself and then teach others. And so I think that then all of a sudden you become indispensable um, because you're translating what this huge community of environmental health experts has been you know, working on for decades, but isn't getting translated to you know, the clinicians. So it's an opportunity. Jump in. The world needs you. <laughs> All of us. All of us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was terrific. And this I, was fun. I really appreciated your time. Thank um, you. Thank you. As Blair and Tamir discussed, when we have information, we may be able to make more informed decisions on an individual level, but in order for us to reach justice, we'll need systemic change, including safe and affordable product options and more stringent personal care product regulations. Clinicians also have a crucial role to play in this work of beauty justice. And by talking to their patients about personal care and consumer product chemical exposures and providing them with simple recommendations to reduce these exposures, we can collectively move the needle towards beauty justice. Thank you all again so much for tuning into this latest episode of Beauty Plus Justice. We'd really love to hear what you think and how you're enjoying it so far. So please leave us a rating and a review on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. Be well and join us next time for a look into some of the dermatological health considerations with Dr. Chashana Kindred, a dermatologist and founder of Kindred Hair and Skin Center. This episode was produced and edited by Marissa Chan, Lisa Johnson, and Felicia Haycoop, with assistance from Elkania Chaudhry-Polino. We receive funding from the Environmental Defense Fund.